Back in the 1950s, one of the most popular shows, and by the way, if you tell me you remember this, you're dating yourself, but one of the most popular shows back then was called What's My Line? Now, some of you may have heard of it. Some of you, maybe your parents used to watch it. For a while, it was the longest-running primetime TV game show in America. Very, very popular. They said the crime rates went down during the time that it was on. So many people were watching it. And the show was one of these kinds, it's pretty, pretty common, it's one of these things where they would have a guest come on and you had your you know, celebrity group that would try to figure out who is this person. They had a certain amount of time, they would take time to go through each four of them, and they tried to narrow down who is this person. And it's usually somebody who had an unusual experience or an unusual occupation, something that they would try to understand who this was, and you get to win wonderful prizes and you know, all those kind of deal. What was interesting is a couple weeks ago, I came across a short video, um, What's My Line, that was aired in the mid-1950s. The video was pretty hard to understand. It was grainy. Of course, it was black and white. But anyways, the guy who was like the MC of the show, he brought in this man, and this man was old. I mean, he was older than dirt. I mean, he was just, they had to like take him and almost carry him up to this place where he was at. And the celebrity panel started asking him questions. And actually, I thought they did really well. They started asking questions. It could it be this? Could it be this? They're all dealing this question. Who is this guy? I mean, he's obviously really old, and he's very frail. So anyway, they started going. They went more and more. And finally, at one point, one of the guys got it. And what he got was this. He found out that old man who was sitting there, when he was a boy, his parents took him to the theater. And his parents loved to go to the theater. But one time, they were there in the theater together, and they heard screaming above. And suddenly, a man jumped out of the balcony to the floor. And it was, no, it was John Wilkes Booth, who had just shot Abraham Lincoln. And so here's a video of a man when he was a boy. He was in the Ford Theater when Lincoln was killed. What's interesting to me is someone who loves history, and I know John loves history, the very thought of, I was only a baby when, that ha when they had that TV show, but there's that connection. Like even in, in my lifetime, there's a connection with a person who actually was there at Ford Theater when Lincoln died. You see, the whole thing of this game that they were doing is, who is this person? And that is exactly what we have been doing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Because what we've seen on and on is Jesus doing things that we just cannot imagine? How, how could this guy who's just a peasant, just a common guy, how is it that the blind can see? How is it that he can show such compassion and love? How is it that this guy can really raise the dead? And the question that kept coming back and forth, who is this guy? We don't have a way to define him. We don't even know what to do with him. Now, as you know, what we've done, we've taken a pretty big break in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We had Advent, remember, then we had Christmas, then we had New Year's, then we had Bob Rowley, who was in with us from the EFCA, and then last week we had David with us, and what a passionate message he brought last week. And so we're now getting back to the Gospel here, the Gospel of Mark. And so I want you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 8, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. The Gospel chart and the Gospel of Mark in chapter eight, we're coming to an important turning point in the whole story of the Gospel of Mark. 
And we'll see that in just a little bit. And we mentioned this, or I mentioned this in the beginning of our series, that most biblical scholars who study the Gospel of Mark say it breaks down into two simple pieces. The first piece that goes from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8, verse 26. And that is basically focusing on Jesus' miracles, Jesus' power, the things that Jesus could do. The second half begins in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and goes to the end of the Gospel of Mark. That would be chapter 16. Okay? So the first half more about Jesus' power over evil, the demonic, over death, uh, over sickness. The second half, though, what we're seeing in Mark 8.27, if you're there in your Bible right now, is that verse is a pivot. You don't see it. There's no word there saying, by the way, this is the pivot. But it is a pivot. Because at this point in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is no longer focusing on the crowds, no longer focusing on the ministry and the healing. He's now turned his attention. He's headed for Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen when he gets there. And so what we have in this passage this morning is a very, very important passage. Let me read this first couple of verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Um, hopefully, you've got maybe a copy of it or someone near you. Here's a picture of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is an ancient place long before even time Jesus came upon the earth. It was a place where it was considered a holy site to the Greeks and later even to the Romans. And if you notice, there's all these like little shrines that have been cut out of the rock. This is a beautiful place in what's today northern Israel. And I've had the privilege of being there, I think, three times. And there's cold water that comes up from its depths that is just wonderful, and it's a wonderful place to be. But you notice all these little grottos and these little shrines were all places where their gods would be set up. And so it's kind of ironic that when Jesus is the moment making this big pivot in his ministry, he does this at one of the most pagan places of northern Israel. In fact, it's interesting, it said Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Notice he probably never went into that beautiful place. It was probably just too, you know, too pagan. But he was in the area, it's a resort area even today, it's a resort area, and it's absolutely beautiful. And so he goes there, and what you have is in the, here in verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, so he's traveling, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Now this is odd because in rabbinic Jewish times, it was just the opposite. The, the students who were learning would ask the rabbi questions, and he would answer. But now the rabbi, Jesus, is asking them the question. And the question that he's answering is incredibly important. He said, who do people say that I am? Well, they, the disciples answered, um, John the Baptist. And that would be a great guess. Because, of course, we know all four Gospels begin with the Gospel. I mean, it goes with the fact that here you have John the Baptist who had amazing ministry. He's this strange guy who comes out of the wilderness preaching repentance, telling people to prepare their way for the coming of Messiah. And so you have all this going on. But the other thing that's interesting about him is here just a few chapters before, you remember John the Baptist was beheaded in the drunken state of the party that they were having. He said, I'll give this person anything they want. And if you remember, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And they gave it to him, to her, to the girl. 
And so John the Baptist dies a terrible death. But what happens here is because this guy is so famous, we're told that even Herod, was a little, Herod Antipas was a little nervous because Jesus was now doing these same kind of things that you know, what, what was going on with John the Baptist. And he was afraid that maybe Jesus is like the reincarnation of John the Baptist. And if he is, he's in big trouble because I think John's going to be too happy about him getting his head cut off. And so, you know, people said, okay, what do you think? What, what's the crowd say about me? Some said, oh, you're just like John the Baptist. Yeah, that's a good guess. It's wrong. That's a good guess. Someone else said, well, others think you're Elijah. Well, that's another good guess. It's another good guess because if you read the last paragraph of, the, of your Bible in the Old Testament, it says Elijah is going to come back and, and bring the children back to their fathers and the fathers to the children. It's an amazing passage. And what makes Elijah so popular is not only was he a great person, many of you remember on the, uh, he had that showdown with the prophets of Baal, 400 people against one and fire coming from heaven. I mean, how's like the odds of 400 to one? But the one worked. And it was his offering that was accepted and burned up by God. And so he's a remarkable man. But the other thing that makes him famous was, of course, he never, right, he never died. He was taken. And so if Elijah was taken, it means he might be coming back. And Malachi, in the very last chapter, says exactly that. He's coming back before that great day of the Lord. So, so far, there's been two things. It could be John the Baptist. Could be. It's not. Well, it could be Elijah, because we know Elijah's coming back, right? Could be. It's not. What's the third one? He said, well, they said, uh, they said oh, well, you're... He's just one of the prophets. Didn't give a name. Yeah, possible. But verse 29 is such a key verse. But you, he asked him again, who do you say that I am? Okay, we heard the crowd. We heard this people in the crowd. We've heard this people. But who do you think he is? And what you see, he asked him, he said, who do you say that I am? And here's Peter's greatest moment. Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Your translation may say, you are the Christ. Christ and Messiah are just the same thing. Both of them mean the anointed one. Kings and priests and prophets could be anointed. And so this word in Hebrew, the Old Testament language of Hebrew, it's Mashiach. It came down to us in English as Messiah. When it was translated into the Greek, when the Greeks controlled that part of the world, it came to the word Christos, meaning anointed one. So Christ and Messiah are meaning the same thing. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is now God has chosen to be the one to bring salvation to this world. And so Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then it seems a little odd. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about it. And we're all going, what? I thought we're into evangelism. I thought we're out letting the world know. He says, no, we're not at this moment. If we do this now, we're probably going to have all kinds of people wanting us to take on the Romans, and this is not what I'm here for. It's what maybe you wanted me to do, but I'm not doing that. And of course, they don't understand this whole thing about where he's going, but he's about to tell them. So look at what happens. He strictly warned them to not to tell anyone about him. Then, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, 
chief priests and scribes, that is, the leadership of Israel, I'm going to be rejected by them. I want you to understand it. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise after three days. Now think about this. Imagine you're one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Things are going great for you. And then Jesus said, I want to let you know. I'm going to be rejected. They're going to kill me. But I want to rise again. How do you think you would respond to that? Well, we know how Peter responded to that. Turning around, excuse me, um, he said, I'm going to rise in three days, verse 32. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's one of the most amazing passages. Here you've got Jesus, I mean, here you've got Peter who gets it right. You are the Christ, the Messiah. Ding, 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 you win. And then Jesus tells him, you know what's coming? Rejection, death, resurrection. Hey, what? Jesus, come on, we need to talk about this, buddy. I mean, you don't get it. We're on a roll here. Crowds of people are coming. People are getting healed. People are looking to him. I mean, we, we can't stop now. Everything's doing great. Why do you got this morose thing going on about death? I mean, we, you need to see a psychiatrist or something. I mean, you, we're, everything's going great, isn't it? And Jesus looks to Peter, who just a moment ago was the one who got it. He said to him, he's open. Peter rebuked in verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Let me tell you what, when Jesus tells you, get behind me, Satan, you're in big trouble. <laughs> now, was he literally Satan? No. But he's saying, Peter, you don't get it. You're now following the desires of what Satan wants, anything other than the cross. Anything that would distract you from the cross, anything that would keep you from following the path that the Father has laid out for you to walk that path to Jerusalem, to take its sinner's death upon a cross. I said, Peter, whether you realize it or not, and I know you don't, but you don't understand what you're saying here. Now think about this in modern terms. I was trying to think of an analogy to this. And I don't know if it's a good one, but we're going to use it anyways. Tomorrow in the morning, those of you guys that check the women who check the news, found out that Apple computer is having a major uh, statement coming out at noon. Well, I can tell you, all across America and across the world, there are many people that want to hear what Apple had to say. Maybe it's a new product. Uh, maybe there's kind of, maybe the splat, or the splat, the, uh, it's going to split. Thank you very much. Okay, the stock's going to split. They don't know what it is, but they know there's a major announcement. Now, just imagine this, okay? Tomorrow at noon, the guy comes out and said, hey, you know, we're one of the most, you know, lucrative you know, groups in America. We have one of the greatest, you know, people think we're wonderful. We're the great innovators, and we're very proud of that. But to tell you the truth, we're tired. This is getting old. So just to let you know, we quit. Thank you very much for coming. Dismissed. Can you imagine that would happen on Wall Street if that would happen? Here's one of the most prosperous cash cows in America saying, oh, we're not really interested anymore. We're quitting. People are like, what? In many ways, this is kind of what, what you, know, you think Peter's doing. Jesus, come on, get over this little thing you got about dying. I mean, dying, we're doing great. Sure that people, I mean, the leaders hate you, but the key people love you. The common people love you. We're on a roll, Jesus. The way we're going, we could draw an army. We could lead that right down to Jerusalem. We could kick those Romans right in the behind and send them back to Italy. And Jesus says, you don't get it, Satan. What? You talking to me? 
I'm Peter. I'm the one that got it right. You were the hero. Now you're the zero. Because you don't get it. Look what happens in this verse. Verse 33. Turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Now notice verse 34. Summoning the crowd among his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That passage, so common, something that we have studied so many times, I know many of you have looked at it, but if you think of it, it's a verse that we kind of have to keep listening to. It's a passage that is so important because it's reminding us, Jesus is saying, wait a minute, Peter, you got it right in the beginning and you got it wrong, but I want you to notice, I am heading towards death. And there's going to be suffering, and there's pain. And I want to tell you something. If you're going to hang around with me and be my disciples, you're going to have struggle as well. So if you have some idea that my bringing in the kingdom at this point is going to be everybody's happy, everybody's got lots of food, and there's lots of wine and merriment, it isn't happening. Before all the joy that's coming, there's going to be suffering first. And if you're going to be one of my disciples who's going to follow me, you're going to follow me right into the hornet's nest. And it's going to lead to, to suffering, and it's going to be a lot of hurt. The reality is we read these verses, and at times it's kind of strange. It says, anyone be, wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross. A lot of people have used that verse, saying, oh, I've got to bear my cross. My indigestion is terrible. This is not what Jesus is talking about. You don't know my spouse. That's a real heavy burden I have to carry. I'm not speaking personally. I'm talking in third person, okay? He's not talking about this. He's talking about that which is truly serious. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. The great paradox. You take up his cross. You know, if you'd been around in the first century, maybe after weeks after Jesus' death or his resurrection, and you saw some lady wearing a beautiful gold cross, what do you think people there would think? <gasps> that symbol, that's the symbol of death. That's the way the Romans kill people. They strip you naked and they beat you and they put you on a cross and they hang up you that they're up there for days until you die. They do it to make it long, painful, so everybody knows, don't mess with us. And they couldn't imagine American Christians today wearing a cross. And by the way, I don't think there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross because after the death of Christ and they understood what was happening, it's like, yeah, that cross, that was terrible. And that's terrible what the Romans do. At one point, they, they crucified 6,000 people at one time. But that cross to us now has a whole new significance. That significance is this is the cross where he died. And yes, it was horrible, but the cross is empty. He's risen from the dead. And because of that, we have life. And that's why today, if you wear a cross, I have no problem with that. That's great. Because to us, we know what that means now after the resurrection, that we have this life of what's going on. But Jesus makes it very clear. You've got to realize, if you stick with me, you're going to experience suffering. This is hard for us as Americans. We have been privileged to live in one of the greatest countries that the modern world has known. We haven't had a major battle on our country, I mean, in that sense, like since the Civil War. And so we have not experienced the suffer many other, suffering many countries have. 
but people have throughout the time since the gospel has come through, and people have had to struggle. One of them was a guy that maybe you've heard of named John Hooper. He was a bishop in England, but there was a new monarchy came in who was very opposed to the Reformation, to the restoration of the church. And so they took, him, took his position away as, as a bishop, and they brought him in again and said, you know, not only are we going to take away your position, but we want you to teach what we tell you to teach. And he said, I cannot do that. And he said, you will do that, or we're going to burn you at the stake. So they gave him a couple days to think about it, and when they called him back up into the new order, they said, have you decided what to do? And he said, I am. And so you're going to do what we tell you? No, I'm not. And you know what's going to happen? He goes, yes, I do. And that night in his cell, thinking about what was going to happen in the morning, he wrote this. True it is that life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal death is more bitter and eternal life is more sweet. So they didn't have to drag him to the pile of fire, of the, the firewood. They let him tie him up there and then they lit him. And they burned him to death. Today, all around the world, there are people that are experiencing persecution because of their faith in Christ. There are some who are in prison, some who have been tortured, some who have been killed. Many people have had to go through many things. This passage is so interesting when he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Do you remember as a kid using this phrase, finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Does everybody know that one? Good. Otherwise, the illustration is worthless, okay? What this passage is saying is losers are keepers. Those who are willing to lose their life for Christ and the gospel are the ones that are going to keep their life, eternal life. And this is an important thing. It is an important thing because it's saying, okay, if you're going to be a follower, and you say, well, you're saved by God's grace through faith. You believe in Jesus, you're saved. That is true. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. All you can do is receive it as a free gift from God. But the reality is, if you come to know him, your life's going to be changed. And part of that change is you're going to be joined in union with Christ. And he has suffered, and you too will suffer. And are you willing to deal with that? Are you willing to follow that? Many of you are familiar um, with a book, of which I've already read portions of, but it's a book by Kyle Eidelman. I don't know if I pronounce it. Is that the right way to pronounce his name, Dara? I don't know either. He wrote an interesting book called Not a Fan. Uh, and what's interesting in that book, he, like many, many other people and scholars, and pe people that follow Christian things, they're very concerned that American evangelicalism, if we face persecution, most of the people are going to take off and run. Now, he, maybe he's wrong. But let me read you a couple paragraphs from what he wrote. He says, one thing you need to do is know what it means DTR. When young people spoke about DTR, they're talking about things define the relationship. It's a term that they use when they're texting each other. DTR, DTR. Now, Michael doesn't do that, but no, sometimes. Okay. DTR. And he gives this illustration that I thought was cute. He said, in high school, I went out on a first date with a girl that I really didn't know very well. We sat down in a booth at a restaurant and began the awkward first date conversation. During the appetizer, I learned a little about her family. While we enjoyed the main course, she told me about her favorite movie. And then it happened. While we were eating our dessert, she asked me, and I quote, where do you see this relationship going? 
on the very first date, she was trying to have the DTR talk. I got out of their PDQ. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but everybody laughs when I say it. That was the first and the last date. Listen to what he said. I wasn't ready for that moment, but there comes a time when you need to define the relationship. It can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. But eventually, every healthy relationship reaches a point where the DTR talk is needed. Is it casual or is it committed? Have things moved past infatuation and admiration toward deeper devotion and dedication? And he said this. Now listen to this really carefully. He said, it seems to me that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were honestly to define their relationship they have with him, I'm not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me there's a more suitable word to describe them. They're not followers of Jesus. They're fans of Jesus. Here's the most basic definition of fan in the dictionary. An enthusiastic admirer. He gives us an illustration. Okay, here's an illustration. It's the guy who goes to a football game with no shirt and a painted chest. He sits in the stands and he cheers for the team. He's got a signed jersey hanging on his wall at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car. But he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit in the open field. He knows all about the players. He can rattle off their latest stats, but he doesn't know the players. He yells and he cheers, but nothing's really required of him. There's no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if the team he's cheering for starts to let him down in a few bad seasons, his passion will wane pretty quickly. After losing several seasons, you can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and begin cheering for another team. He's an enthusiastic admirer. And I am reading what he says. And I think Jesus has a lot of fans these days. Fans who cheer for him when things are going well, but who walk away when it's a difficult season. Fans who sit in the stands cheering, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and the pain on the field. Fans of Jesus who know all about him, but they don't know him. Now listen to this last paragraph. Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, quote, enthusiastic admirer isn't an option. He writes, my concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but they have no interest in truly following him. Listen to this last statement. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits but not so close that it requires anything from them. That is a damning statement. And it's probably true. Now look at this. It's easy for us to say, oh, that's right, it's happening all across the church in America. Isn't it bad? Whew, sure glad it's not happening to us, right? Really? I wonder. Here's what I'd like you to think about this week. I want you to think about this. As you, in time in prayer, and you time think about things, I'd like you to think about this one question. One simple question. As God looks upon me, am I a follower or am I a fan?
Now, I can give you a hundred reasons why I can tell you, you know, I'm a follower, I can do this, and I do that. But, I mean, as God knows our heart, I mean, we can fool ourselves and trick ourselves in lots of ways. But the question is, as God looks upon me, what category does he put you in? Fan, 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 follower, fan, 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 follower. Where do you think this week, as you spend time in the Word, and time of prayer, ask the Lord, say, Lord, would you show me? Do you look upon me and see me? One of your better fans, but still just a fan. It's important for us to be asking the question, are we really all in? 20 years ago, when some of you heard me preach 20 years ago, it would not be quite so difficult then to preach a message, but it's different now. We live in a different culture from the time I started preaching 28 years ago. Back then, America was primarily a Christian, quote, country. Even if the people were not actually Christians, they were all part of that Judeo-Christian heritage. That is eroding before our eyes. We are going to find ourselves in a short time to be the minority in America. And as many people say, oh, it's all over for us as well. What do you think about happened within, in, in the first century? They were a tiny minority. And God used that to sweep the world as they knew it. So we don't want to live in despair. But it does make us to ask the question, okay, are we going to be prepared when struggle does come? When we're going to count the cost? Or maybe we won't get into this particular college we want because they know we're, oh, it's a Christian, we've had enough of them. Or maybe you won't get the job because you're not in the same group this person is or have the same beliefs. The question is, what will you do when you realize if I do this, it's going to hurt me. And I have to choose between letting myself experience that hurt or be faithful to God. That's the question I need to ask my, excuse me, that's the question I need to ask myself. That's the question you need to ask yourself. Does God, does Christ look upon me and say, really good fan? Or does he say, a good follower who messes up like Peter does, who's going to fall on their face, who's going to have good times and bad times, but at the end of the road, when the persecution comes, they'll be there for me. Where will you be when they come to take you away? Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it won't happen in our lifetime. Hopefully not in our children's lifetime, but it could. We've seen it in other cultures. And so the question for the day, the question of the hours between you and your God, does he see you as a fan or a follower? Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Father, we realize it's one of those passages that is just so in our face, so clear. The Father, those of us who are believers here, we don't want to just be a fan. We want to be a person that's sold out for Jesus Christ, who are willing to count the cost, and if necessary, to experience whatever that cost may be for Christ and the gospel. Father, we ask that you be with us now as we prepare our hearts to the Lord's table, as we remember again where even Peter wanted to distract them from wanting to go to Jerusalem, but, Father, he went there 
that he might do the Father's bidding to be the final sacrifice for human sin, to be our Savior, our King, and our Lord. Prepare our hearts for the table, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.